For some time on these Sunday mornings, we have had before us Paul's epistle to the Philippians. But don't turn to that because we are saying goodbye for the moment to that epistle and turning to a corresponding one. This morning, we'll be rather establishing a link between two epistles. Now, you do know, most of you, that Paul's prison ministry has a particular bearing upon our own calling at the present time, and we usually speak of the four prison epistles. There are five, Philemon being a wonderful private epistle that we may study uh, personally, but four of them are definitely the basic teaching uh, for our calling. I'm reminding you of what you know so that we may go on. There are two epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, that bear the stamp of prison, that are basic. And those two epistles contain key words. They speak of a dispensation entrusted. They speak of the mystery. They speak of principalities and powers. They speak of a heavenly calling. They speak of the fullness. Those two are linked by those key words. But then the other two, Philippians, Philippians doesn't speak of fullness, but blessed be God, it speaks of exactly the opposite. Because we found in the second chapter, when it said he made himself of no reputation, the literal passage should read, he emptied himself. But don't you see, some people have taken the words, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, to prove deity. Now, we believe the deity of Christ, but we don't take verses out of Scripture to prove it if it's nothing to do with it. Because the very self-same word is used of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So Ephesians is the fullness. But for our sakes, he emptied himself, and the fullness now that he contains is for us. It's nothing to do with himself. He laid aside that for our sake. So Philippians is the other point of view. Not merely he ascended up far above all principality and power as Ephesians puts it, but he who was there already by right descended as deep as it ever it could possibly be to the death of the cross. Now, in Ephesians and Colossians, the whole atmosphere is grace and gift. By grace are you saved, through faith, and that God of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But when you come to Philippians, he said, oh yes, you can't be saved by your works. But he says, you ought to work out your salvation, otherwise what's the good of it? So we don't earn our salvation, but once it's given to us, we're like the man who received ten talents, or five talents, or one talent. What are you doing with it? So Philippians, Instead of speaking about a gift, he says, and don't forget there's a prize attached to this high calling. In Ephesians 1 he said, I pray for you that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And in Philippians he says, I'm praying for you may know what is the prize of that calling. Now the prize has an element of uncertainty about it, otherwise it wouldn't be a prize. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, They all run in the race, but only one receiveth the prize. Now, it doesn't mean to say that we say, oh, well, we'll never get it. That's not the argument. But it means to say, there's a great difference between receiving a gift, which you can never merit or earn, 
and then an added prize for any service that God may be pleased to recognize. Well done, good and faithful servant. That isn't gift, that's recognition of some faithfulness. So we've got two epistles which give basic truth, Ephesians and Colossians, and we have two epistles, Philippians and Second Timothy, which gives us an exhortation to stand, to run, to witness, and so on. Well, now I've suggested to you that we've got words that link Ephesians and Colossians together. I suggest to you we've got terms that link Philippians and Second Timothy together. So you see, you can imagine it now, A, B, A, B. The two A's are basic, Ephesians, Colossians. The two B's are now the ones that go on, the prize element, or in, in Second Timothy, the crown. He doesn't say the prize. He said, I have finished my course, 2 Timothy 4, I have finished my course, and the word course is the word, is the word dromos, and the word dromos has entered into modern language when we speak of a hippodrome, and the hippodrome, of course, you know, hippo means a horse, it means a race course. So we've got the element of prize again, you see, in 2 Timothy. And he says, henceforth he's laid up for me a crown. So in, in Philippians he says it's a prize, and in 2 Timothy it's a crown, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 it's base. Because I've met some people, they just say, oh, it says in one case a crown, and the other says a prize. Well, it's only ways of saying the same thing from two points of view. In the Philippians, he urges them that they should try the things that differ, prove those things which are more excellent. And in 2 Timothy, he comes back on it in the well-known passage, rightly divide the word of truth. So I think you've got to know, or there are two more words that make a very definite link. In Philippians chapter 1, he said he would, if he had his own option, he would prefer to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, because that man had had such a doing that by that time, he got to the, almost the end of his tether except by grace. I would prefer to depart, but he says, I shan't. I'm going to remain here a bit longer for you. But when 2 Timothy is written, he says, the time for my departure has come. Same word. And then he says, in uh, Philippians, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And in 2 Timothy he says, that I'm now about to be offered. Well, you see, those things are there, written in the book. They're not inventions of mine, they're just there. So now we've got Philippians echoed by 2 Timothy. What do you say to yourself? I wouldn't be at all surprised if we're going to look at 2 Timothy. Well, that's a logical connection, isn't it? And my reason is this, among other things. I suppose sometimes it has entered into your heart and mind what a blessed thing it would be if we could drop a line to the Apostle Paul and put to him the problems we've got. But you say, oh, that's a fantastic thing. Oh, it is for us. But it wasn't a fantastic thing in these days. Paul wrote to the Philippians. Paul had received something from them. He said to the church at Rome, he said, I want to come to you that we might uh, uh, establish one another by the mutual faith of you and me. What wouldn't we give for a half an hour's talk with the Apostle Paul? But you say, well, that's greedy. I know, I know. I'm coming to my point. I wonder whether you ever entered in sympathy with the children's hymn. I wish that his hands 
had been laid on my head, that his arms had been thrown about me, that I could have heard his kind words when he said, let the little ones come after me. Oh, you say, that's silly, that's silly. Is it? Have you never felt somehow we are a little bit at a disadvantage now? Is it no advantage to know that the Apostle was living, qualified, speaking, writing, visiting? Now we are very much hoping that we should have a repeat on the May meeting, that this little chapel will be so full we're almost wondering whether we should get all in. We crowd all the aisles, we sit everywhere. But you know what would happen if it was advertised that not merely I was going to speak, but the Apostle Paul was going to be here in person. Well, that's silly, isn't it? But that's what happened in the church. He was there. Well, you see what I'm getting at? I meet with some people who have got a sort of feeling, and you may have had it. Well, you know, these people in the early church, they had all the help that you can think of. But look at us. Look at us. Christ is absent. He's there at the right hand, but he's, of course, remembering us. The apostles dead, and there are no successors. So I want to go back for a moment to the parable of the talents. Don't turn to it, you've got it in your mind. There was one man who had ten talents. There was one man who had five talents. There was one man who had one talent. Now the ten talent man, he produced ten. And the five talent man produced five. Now I've confessed to you before that my arithmetic is shocking. But I was complimented this morning as having not made a mistake. I said and I believe that the one talent man, if he produced one talent, would have been the same percentage as all the rest. If ten produces ten, and five produces five, and one produces one, but that man who only had one, he hid it in the earth. Now we are likely to get into that frame of mind. The Apostle Paul was a ten talent man, say. Oh, he got all the talents, but he got to produce ten friends. You can't do what the Apostle Paul could do, and the Lord doesn't expect it. And Timothy, he was a five-talent man. Even in this epistle, when all the gifts have been suspended, he's reminded that he was called during the Acts of the Apostles, and he received the gift, and he said, you stir it up and use it. But I never received a gift. No hands have been put on my head, and if they had, they'd have been empty. Then another thing, I went through the epistle to the Philippians, and you could do the same if you wish, and marked every occurrence of the little preposition sue together with. Sometimes it's in combination with a word, sometimes it stands alone. Striving together, my fellow labourer, my truly yoked fellow, you see? All the emphasis, all there's an abundant emphasis in Philippians on the fact that they were standing together, serving together, being, helping one another. When you come to Second Timothy, it's hardly used. But instead of together, 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 one of the key words of Second Timothy is thyself, thyself, thyself. Only Luke is with me, that's Paul. All that are Satan me, that's Paul. Well, that's where we are, friends. We're right down on the one talent element. So don't try to do what Paul did, but say, God knows. Now, in a race, they have to have the handicap. And so many, somebody's given so many yards in front. I mean, uh, so far as running is concerned, it's no good me entering the door because I shouldn't get to the end of the race course. I limp too much. But God knows all those difficulties. 
He knows all those limitations. And so we come from Philippians with its high standing and its high ground to Second Timothy, which deals with the days in which we live. So will you turn to Second Timothy and see that it does deal with days in which we live. Two Timothy chapter three. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That word perilous is used of the man who was very savage, whom no man could tame. And then later on you read of a man in the same condition who was found sitting clothed and in his right mind. And Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of a sound mind, the same word. So in the days when there are perilous times, we may not have supernatural gifts. We may not be able to strike a person dead as Peter did. That's a good thing we can't, perhaps. But at the same time, we've got something that will help us. Now we've got these perilous times. And I'm not going through this very far, but just to, to get the context. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Notice the emphasis upon the word love. And looking at the English word, you wouldn't suspect at first that the word love is repeated. But it is. The word covetous is to love money. And then, in the middle of it, verse 3, they're without natural affection. And then at the end, verse 4, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. One of the thoughts today is, as the Apostle said, now abide faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, and the greatest of these is going. So in chapter 4, he says, verse, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all men also that have what? Served, witnessed, run. It might be, but he puts one word. Also those that love is appearing. Do thy diligence to come up shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me. What, has he given up the truth? As he said, all right division is not of humbug? No. Having loved this present world. Loved, loved, loved. So you see, that's where we're getting to. Well now, for this morning, as our time of course is not unlimited, and this is introductory, I'd like to give you a sketch only of this second Timothy, so that then when we meet together, we can fit in the details piece by piece. Now the first section, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, there's a salutation and a remembrance, and then it ends, of course, in chapter 4 with a salutation and a remembrance of Pope's names. We won't stop too long on them. Just go through it with me with the barest possible outline. But I do ask you to notice this. In uh, verse two, uh, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life. If you'll turn to 1 Timothy... I have a feeling that he's got an emphasis there. Uh, no, if you turn to Titus, 
That's the other epistle of this period. You'll find that he's got an emphasis there on this promise of life. For the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. It's a very natural thing when a man is reaching the end of his course to be more and more thinking of the promise of life and life which is eternal. Yes, but there's another feature in Second Timothy. Second verse. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy and peace. Now, you do know, don't you, that in practically every one of Paul's epistles, he has that double salutation, grace to you and peace. Grace was the light-hearted cheerio of the Greek, and peace was the deeper shalom of the Hebrew. But now he puts the word mercy in. See, the nearer he got to the end of his days, instead of being boastful and saying, oh, I'm quite all right, the nearer he got to the end of his days, the more conscious he was of the need of mercy. And you'll find, now we do look, I do find that in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, Verse 2, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. And in Titus, which is the third one of this group, verse 4, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace. He tells us that he received mercy because he did what he did ignorantly in unbelief. It's a very good thing, friends, to have a tender conscience and not boast too much, even though we may have been running this race for many years. To Timothy, that's the introduction. Now he compares himself, in verse 3, with Timothy's upbringing. He said, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience. And we shall look at that again in passing. But he said, so far as you're concerned, Timothy, verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice. So he's comparing the two. And you know, sometimes we make mistakes. We look at somebody else and we say, mm, I wish I was in his shoes. And as far as you know, the other one's looking at you saying, I wish I was in your shoes. That's a silly thing. You see, Timothy may have said to Paul, Paul, I envy you. Why is that, son, Timothy? You know the exact spot on the road to Damascus when you were converted. Yes, he said, I do. But he says, I don't know. From a child I know the Holy Scriptures, which are like, he said, Timothy, you'll be thankful you had a good drilling when you were a child, for I was a persecutor and I'd have been stricken down with blindness before my heart was opened. Don't you see how wrong it is for us sometimes to make false comparisons? I don't know whether you've ever seen Ada Habersham's booklet. It's entitled, How a River Ought to Flow. Of course, it was just an analogy, a fable. It seems as though the rivers had a conference, a summit conference, I suppose, because it all ended in moonshine, but it was a conference. And I think the, um, the River Rhine uh, was the chairman, and he was rather an aristocrat. And he gave it as his edict that no river was worthy the name that didn't arise in a glacier. You know, like that. And the Nile said, no, no, no. 
A river is not worthy the name that doesn't spread, spread its mud all over the banks. That's, e- that's Egypt. Poor old River Thames says, well, I get it in the neck, he says, whenever I spread mud over my banks, and I've never ar- risen in a glacier. And after a bit, they came to the conclusion that every river had to flow according to God's ordinance, and never mind about the other one. Don't you see how false it is? Keep on envying somebody else instead of using your one talent, or your five talents, or your ten talents. So if we are living in days when we are sort of left with what? Don't, don't let's be speaking disrespectfully now. Only with the word of God. That's where we are, friends. We can't appeal to anybody to give us uh, ex-cathedra reply. We haven't got anyone who is given the power of prophecy. But we are left here and the great insistence in this epistle is We've got the word of God. And while we've got that, we've got really all that's sufficient for a light and a lamp and sustenance till travelling days are done. We'll have to look at all those things in passing, of course, and give them more a detailed approach. But the first section of this epistle, I've got to cram it in now a few minutes, commences with verse um, 8 and ends with verse 18. And it's got an emphasis upon one word. Be not thou therefore ashamed. And then, in verse uh, 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. And then again, in verse 16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Elizabeth, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed. We're living in days when it's possible to be ashamed of association with this man who was put in prison. This man who was apparently an outsider. This man who was not one of the twelve. And the word that we just lift out from this section is the word forsaken. Verse 15. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Turned away from me, forsaken. Will you turn to the last chapter, which comes back again to this very same thought? Chapter 4, verse 10, for Demas hath forsaken me. Or if you want the word turn away, as it says in chapter 1, they turn away from me, look at verse 4. They shall turn away their ears from the truth. So we get turn away and forsaken in the last chapter. Well, we come back on our story a bit and we look at the next section. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Here we have a stress upon service, but not only so, recognition. He says, verse 5, If a man also strive for the masteries, yet is he not crowned? except he strive lawfully, yet is he not crowned. That's negative. But look at chapter 4 again, a little beforehand, where we were looking just now. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown, and all those also who loved his appearing. So, there's an emphasis in the second division of this, that God will remember your service. You're not doing it for reward, possibly. But God says, in Hebrews, which is the great epistle balancing Philippians, 
They that come unto God must believe that he is, and that stresses the fact that they endure as seeing him that's invisible, and that he's a rewarder. And that's the great stress in Hebrews. Because it speaks even of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured a cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. So we've got now forsaken, but sustained in chapter 1, forsaken in chapter 4, but out of all this, he said, the Lord delivered me, and will deliver me. Let's get the triumphant words of chapter 4 at the end. Verse 17, chapter 4, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to him be glory. He already knew and has told us that he was not going to be delivered. Nero's judgment that was now going to fall and that man was going to be led out to execution. But you see what the man said? He said, Nero isn't stopping me. The Lord has stopped me. I have finished my course. Now Nero can do what he likes. And that's the attitude we must have. Well now, we must press on because of time. In the middle of this, we have two words. The one the positive and the one the negative. The two words are approved and disapproved. So will you look at this? And I know where you're going to turn, at least I hope so. 2 Timothy 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. I think we do well to remind ourselves that when we keep quoting 2 Timothy 2.15, it doesn't say rightly dividing the word of truth first. It says approved unto God first and then shows you how. So the first thing is, are we going to be delivered from the idea of bowing and scraping to the opinions of our fellows? There comes a moment when we have to stand alone if needs be. We don't want to be roughshod. We don't want to be what they call John Blunt. You know, somebody says, I call a spade a spade. He says, you don't. I won't quote what he said, but you may know it. We don't want to be like that. But nevertheless, there comes a moment when we must take our stand and say, the one thing that matters to me is whether I'm approved unto God. I'll never get all the approval of my sinners, whatever I do. And the person who is most to be pitied is the one who's trying to please everybody. But he ends up by pleasing nobody. But the man who's to be envied is, even though he's got enemies by the score, who has a quiet conscience because he knows he's approved unto God. Well, that's the one thing. Well, now let's look at the disapproval. Chapter 3. This um, we have in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. I'm reading this again. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, true strikers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's enough to frighten you out of your life, isn't it? But we can see so many of these things beginning to rear their heads. And here's the dreadful thought. If you were to take the Greek instead of the English and mark off the words here in 2 Timothy 3 
that are already written at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, you'll discover that this is paganism being revived. That it's going back almost to the deadly condition that Paul describes of the ancient Roman world. And there are many who boast today that they are just pagan and glory in it. Here we got it. Now then, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women and don't emphasize the silly women without remembering that it says in verse 13 that evil men, they're not pillaring one against the other. They've both got their responsibilities. Laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as Jans and Jamries withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the truth. Now that word reprobate is the word disapproved. Disapproved. Just a negative of what we've had in 2.15. So rightly dividing the word of truth, you are approved unto God. And if you resist the truth, you're disapproved unto God. Simple, isn't it? Well then you see the emphasis in chapter 4 is this word of truth is the one thing that's entrusted to you and the one weapon you've got. So shall we finish by looking at the opening verses of 2 Timothy 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom do what? Preach the word. Not only preach the gospel but preach the word. Not merely say, come and be saved, but tell people why they need salvation, to whom they should come and what the consequences are. Preach the word. Be instant in season, and so many misquote this, be instant in season and out of season. You say, what's the difference? I think the apostle says, look, friends, it's in season so far as God is concerned, and it's everlasting to be out of season so far as anybody else is concerned. They'll always say to you, at some more convenient season I will hear you, you know. But they said to the Apostle, no, no, it'll never be in season with some people, but you go on whether they like it or not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And of course it isn't the teachers that have got itching ears, you know, it's the congregation. And the qualification for the man who's going to stand in the pulpit so far as they're concerned is that he can tickle their itchy ears. And he does it by referring to his or a convenient word that comes at the end of verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables and the word is myths. Myths. And you can read modern commentaries of the Bible. You don't get many pages through book of Genesis before you meet the myth. And this is a myth, and that's a myth. It's a great misunderstanding, I think. And the contrast between the word myth, this is, see, the word myth and the word mystery belong to the same group. They both mean something hidden, and one's the evil and one's the true, and here's the tragedy. The man who sees the truth of the mystery and turns from it for any reason will be stricken with a spiritual blindness, and he'll accept the myth, and he'll go wandering. Oh, what a tragedy. Well, that's as far as we're going this morning. I knew that it was introductory. I should only be able to begin spots of it. 
But I hope it's quickened your interest enough to say, well, I'll come back again. And we'll open this book and we'll take section by section so that the book which is written to help those who live in perilous times, who have no apostle to refer to, who have no spiritual gifts to call upon, who have got the word of God and the principle of right division, friends, if we'll only let that do its work, we are fitting. And then remember the handicap. God is not going to judge us exactly the same as he'll judge the Philippians. He's going to judge us by what he's given us and the circumstances that he knows. So don't worry yourself because you're not a ten-talent Christian or a five-talent Christian. But remember this, that if you're a one-talent Christian and you come to the Lord with one talent, you'll get good, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord exactly the same as though you were the Apostle Paul himself. Or may the Lord grant unto us grace that we may remember that he knows our affairs and his all-sufficient grace and he's not unfaithful to forget the circumstances in which we serve him.